talking about huge potential for millions of people our therapy enables the brain to repair itself we call it the cure i want you to start testing on chimps asap we test one subject i want to make sure it's stable I designed the 112 for repair, but Caesar's gone way beyond that. You mean increased intelligence? The skills that far exceed that of a human counterpart. This is wrong, Will. It works. And what about Caesar? Where does he fit in? That chimp's company property. He hasn't spent any time with other chimps. They're not people, you know. You're trying to control things that are not meant to be controlled. They are contaminated. Put those apes down. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review podcast show where we ask the ever-important question, Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and today I am joined by my friend, Zaki Hassan. Welcome aboard, Zaki. How you doing? Hey, how's it going? Good to talk to you. Uh, it's good to have you on. Uh, for anybody listening, uh, I guess Zaki and I have been communicating back and forth probably for the better part of five months now trying to find the time when we could do this do at least one episode together and i don't plan on letting him off the hook at one we're going to end up probably doing another one down the line and maybe more sounds good to me but uh, first the first order of business was figuring out what we were going to do and it was almost like the slate of potential movies to cover was too large to narrow down (laughs) but but eventually i think we hit on a a magical phrase when when zaki said the words planet of the apes and I think both of our eyes opened wide at that moment, and we decided, okay, that's a good one to hit first. So then the next question became, which Planet of the Apes movie are we going to do? Uh, anybody who's listened to me enough knows that I love the original series. Uh, I was not too big on the Tim Burton one, which we have already done an episode on. And I'm big on the reboot that is currently underway. So I suggested that we do Rise of the Planet of the Apes, going right into the reboot, and Zachy was game. So here we are right now, and I'm going to just throw it out to you in general, Zachy, without going into this specific movie. What's your Planet of the Apes background, and what, what appeals to you about them? Oh my gosh. So I, I have been a fan of the franchise since I was, uh, I think, uh, seven years old. I, I was uh, living in Saudi Arabia in the 80s, and in, in 1987 on TV, they showed, on Saudi TV, they showed the planet of the apes animated series return to the planet of the apes 
Mm-hmm. And I, I was familiar with the films uh, from before then, just in, in an abstract sense. I hadn't seen them, but the cartoon was my introduction to the universe. And that was it, man. I was, again, I was seven years old, but I was just, I, I, and, and this is, again, I'm, I'm living overseas. And this is during the time when the franchise was completely fallow. So I'm trying to track down any piece of apes, anything that I can because I was just so uh, enamored of it. And then I, I got to see the first uh, and third movie a few years later, and that was it. I mean, Planet of the Apes, the original one, is without equivocation my favorite movie of all time. I, mm-hmm. I love it to pieces. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't even know how many times I've seen it, you know, and, and I love all of the the sequels to to lesser or greater extents but i think that the 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 1968 movie is a legitimately great american film you know without needing to classify it as sci-fi or or this and that it's just it's just a classic okay yeah that's 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 strong strong term strong words yeah as much as i love this series and like i said i'm on the record that i do I, i don't know if i'm quite as into it as you are and i'm impressed uh and and it, it, it with the exception of the tim burton movie which again we've already covered on here uh the cartoon series is probably the most iffy way of getting into the franchise i know isn't that funny uh, you know because that that's you know it was one season i think it was I don't, I'm trying to think if it was even 22 episodes i think it, it was the 13 13 episodes. 13 episodes yeah you know the animation was not particularly strong. Nope. <laughs> uh, you know, then the next thing would be the TV series, which was, you know, you know typical mid seventies sci-fi. Yeah. You know, I think, series. you know, I, I think for me, I'll, I'll tell you the, the appeal of, of the cartoon show, which I think, I mean, as an adult, it's obviously it's, uh, it has its problems, but I think, I think what made it work is that it, it zeroed in on a sense of, of unease and discomfort that that we as the audience should feel uh, watching certainly the original film, but you know there's it it really there's there's a visceral uh, discomfort that this franchise should provoke because it's about something uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and so I think I think certainly looking back now with with my gosh thirty years of perspective i can say that even as a kid i zeroed in on that the the fact that the the cartoon show even did a really good job of foregrounding this idea that this is a this is an apocalypse story and this is about man doing something horrible to man and then the 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 ramifications of that And, and i think just the sheer novelty of the fact that they made a cartoon series out of it it's it's virtually unheard of i mean i you know the only thing i can think of that's comparable uh, not tonally, but thematically, something like Thundar the Barbarian, which has a very similar uh, setting. But even that, you know, that's a that's a post-apocalyptic show that that follows a sort of a natural disaster. Right. Whereas yeah. whereas the Ape series is about man nuked himself, and here we here we go. Hey, Saturday morning TV, you know. <laughs> well, I think it's honestly, I think it says something for you that at seven years old you could kind of appreciate that subtext and kind of dive into it head first in this in that way now i gotta say for me uh planet of the apes has been with me much like you almost my whole life uh i was born in 62 so uh in 68 when the first movie came out uh, my dad took me and one of my brothers to see it 
So I've seen oh, wow. I've seen every single Apes movie in the theater. Oh man, that's amazing. And the original Planet of the Apes I've probably seen in the theater like five times. Nice. Because I had seen it, and then they had had uh, when Beneath the Planet of the Apes came out, they showed it as a double feature, so I saw it again. And then there were various times where that happened, uh, including after the fifth movie came out, there was a marathon of all five movies in the theater. Oh, nice. Which uh, my brother, who's two and a half years older than I am, you know, we, we still, we, we wax nostalgic about the fact that sitting next to each other through five movies, uh, by the time it was over, we were throwing punches at each other and we got kicked out of the movie <laughs> theater in, in the fifth movie. <laughs> but, you know, at the time it was, we were at each other's throats, but now we're, uh, we, look at, we look at it with, and we laugh about how much fun it was to beat each other up in the theater. Right. But yeah, so then they came out with the 2000 Mark Wahlberg, Tim Burton version. And just quickly, because we did already cover that in an episode, but I'm curious what your take was on that. And if, uh, you, if you, you know, if you were anxiously awaiting it at the time or, you know. You, oh, yeah. I mean, well, I, I had been, I mean, I had been waiting for the new Planet of the Apes since I think it was like 88 or 89 when they first announced that, oh, they're, they're planning a new, new ape movie. He was originally going to star Arnold Schwarzenegger, I believe. He he was one of the people. At, at one point, it was going to be a straight up sequel, and then they decided to do a reboot. I mean, this it, this has a tortured development process. Oliver Stone was attached, James Cameron, uh, Peter Jackson. At one point, I mean, it, you know, for for again about about uh, twelve years, and so when it finally got when it finally came out, I I was I always say this like when Star Wars: The Phantom Menace came out. You had sort of uh, this this outbreak of of willful denial among Star Wars fans. We're like, no, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Um, and I always say that, you know, in '99 when the Phantom Menace came out, I knew right away. I was like, this guys, this is not a good movie, you know. But I went through my own Phantom Menace syndrome when Planet of the Apes 2001 came out because I would say for the first like four months, I was like, eh, it's, it's pretty good, you know. I was like. <laughs> Your your voice gets higher pitched as you try to just eh, it's not that bad. You sound like Jay Leno, um, and and then you know it, I think it took me watching it on DVD to be like oh my god this thing is garbage you know and and uh, it it is not a movie it's not a it's not an underrated gem it's 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 just garbage it gets worse every time you see it uh, the only redeeming quality is the ape effects uh, the makeup by Rick Baker which is just spectacular but everything else is just it's poop on a stick okay so now having lived through that yeah because that's actually you know we're just gonna run right by that one because that's not what we're here for today but having <laughs> lived through that what was your anticipation as rise of the planet of the apes started coming up on the horizon you know you know surprisingly i, w I was i was not uh i was not like oh god not another one i was like oh cool you know and, and when i first heard about it was it must have been uh, uh, 2008, 2007 or 2008, something like that. And there were the first intimations. And at the time, it was called Caesar. That was the title. And it was it was being positioned as sort of an oblique uh, uh, prequel to Planet of the Apes without explicitly having that title in the name. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and then obviously, and, and then it went from Caesar to Rise of the Apes, and then, you know, eventually it became Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And, and, I didn't know that much about it, but I did know that they were taking their cues clearly from from the original, um, the original, uh, if not the original cycle, the the, the f 
film at least, uh, which was reassuring. And, you know, it, it reminded me of like in, in 2001, when Roger Ebert reviewed the, the Tim Burton movie, he said, he said something which stayed with me. He said, uh, in, in 10 years, people aren't going to be watching this planet. Of the Apes. They're going to be watching the original one. Yeah. And, that's a, you know, and that, he he was pretty uh, on the money with that. He he was completely on the money, right? And and what's extraordinary is here we were exactly ten years later, and here was a film that completely dis- disregarded the, the Tim Burton movie and and tied in specifically with the original, which I think to me is is the proof of Ebert's hypothesis. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, as as this one was upcoming, I kind of turned a blind eye to it. Not because I wasn't interested in seeing it, but because I was just trying to keep my expectations down. I do find that I, I fare better if I don't get my expectations too high. Yeah, uh, that's true. Some, somebody made a point in one of the shows that we recorded uh, of talking about it. I think it was Blaine Dowler mentioned that uh, a lot of times people's initial reviews when they come out of the movie are less based on the movie itself and often based on what their anticipation is for the movie. If, if they had their expectations too high, even if it's a good movie, they're going to walk out disappointed. And if they kept their expectations low, even if it's not a great movie, they're going to say, Oh, that was all right. Uh, so I do often try to just not so much, you know, not that I don't want to enjoy it, but that I just kind of don't plan in my mind for what to expect. And sure. part of my process with that is what I'll do is if I already know for a fact I'm going to go see a movie, I will start going into a media shutdown. I don't really want yeah. to see coming attractions. I don't want to read articles that are going to tell me you know, little bit, tidbits of what's going to go on because I don't want any spoilers and I don't want my expectations to start you know, developing. Yeah. So I'd, I'd rather go in as clean and fresh as I can. So as this one got anna- was announced, uh, knowing that I was not happy with the Burton version. Uh, I just kind of just went on media blackout. I said, I'm going to see it when it comes out. Uh, and, you know, when, when I ultimately went to see it, I was extremely happily surprised. Sure. Now that said, the movie is not, you know, it, it literally is the rise of the planet of the apes because it's not really, you know, it, it's the whole development process Yes. So it starts off very slow. It's really, really focusing primarily just on Caesar for the most part for two thirds of the movie. Right. And it is a you know it is by comparison to all of the other apes movies a very small movie. Right. And I think that's part of its appeal. And when I first saw it, my concern was it may not hold up to repeated viewings because it isn't very action oriented and there isn't it isn't very fast moving and it's really a character study for most of the movie and i wasn't sure if that was something you know once you've seen it sometimes it's like okay i don't need to see that again i've already been there uh whereas action movies to me uh, at least personally i can just watch them over and over again because the action is what captures me and then usually i'll find myself uh multitasking as i watch them because they can be mindless entertainment for me uh this, however, has held up to repeated viewings for me. I've seen it you know, numerous times, including watching it again last week in preparation for us to record today. And I'm curious how you, know, how you first saw it and how it's gone with you as far as that goes. Yeah, so I, well, I went and saw it opening night, and I'm kind of the same as you. Where I mean, I, I didn't go in with any great knowledge of, 
of the specifics other than, you know, the broad strokes of the story. And, you know, I'm, I'm the same with you in terms of, uh, I'll watch a trailer or two and, you know, especially because of my, my movie podcast, I, I have to watch trailers, but I try to avoid as much as possible reading anything about stories and things like that, because I, I, as you mentioned, I just like to experience it. Uh, and with this one in particular, my, my curiosity was how specifically would it tie in with the original film? That was what I went in curious about. And, and the, what I think is very interesting is that it, you know, it, it, it completely discards the, the original, um, the, the sequels, you know, from beneath through, through battle for the planet of the apes, but it works as, as essentially a, a prequel to, to the first film. And, in, it works in a, in a, in a way, uh, what, an analogy I've made is it's sort of like the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight version of Planet of the Apes. And what I mean by that is if you watch those Dark Knight movies, Christopher Nolan spent a lot of time grounding that universe to the point where it's like this is the practical, quote-unquote, realistic way we would get this. Yeah, and so, it, it does have that feel about it. I, I don't know science. I'm not a scientist. I right. don't know about, you know, uh, drugs to prevent Alzheimer's. I don't know about how the testing process works. But for the most part, it all feels natural and it feels like the way it would potentially occur or could potentially occur. With yeah. one big nitpick for me. and uh, Which, which it, is what? It, it, the fact that they go through all of this... Clearly, they're going through a painstaking process of testing, and they don't know that Bright Eyes is pregnant. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and she's able to have a baby in her cell with nobody realizing it? That's yeah, the that's... one nitpick I have with this movie, and I do have a tough time getting past that. Hmm, that's 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 very interesting. I, di- I didn't think about it. I guess for me, it was just like, well, that's the buy, I guess, that we have to make, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I am able to get past it. I but but every time I see it, it's like really you didn't know that. Yeah, that's a big one. I you know I I I I do think ultimately I think I think for me what makes Rise of the Planet of the Apes work is that at its core, as the best of these films really highlights, it's it's based in man's hubris, right? And and I think what makes it so much more interesting is that the person who is I mean, in, in, uh, ultimately responsible for the fall of humanity, does it for the most noble ends, which is I want to cure Alzheimer's, you know, and I, and I love that dichotomy. I love the fact that not only do I want to cure Alzheimer's, but I love my dad and I want to extend his quality of life. Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, I and I think that we, I mean, the the, the moments between uh, Franco and John Malkovich are, are fantastic, and and the uh, the you, uh, moment when, when you mean John Lithgow. Sorry, John. Lit- John Malkovich would have been a very different movie. <laughs> I, I bet you he could have pulled it off, but that's besides the point. <laughs> I think Dad would have been a little more sinister. I feel like if it was Malkovich, <laughs> quite possibly. Uh, but you yeah, know, with Lithgow, I mean, when when he passes away, and uh, he, you know, uh, Franco wants to give him the the next drug, and he kind of just uh, tells him not to. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's such a poignant uh, thing, and and I think. What 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 I love is that you know subtextually we're, we we're creating a character in Caesar who who is just his loyalties are just split right down the middle and the idea that we're now his his journey has to end in failure that's what's so interesting to me you mean in, 
the 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 Franco character. No, it's Caesar Caesar's character, right? Well, it because, doesn't because, have to end in failure because he ends up. It has to end as failure as far as his human connection. Well, it it has to end in failure in the sense that we see his arc both in this film and in in Dawn of the Planet Apes as one about reconciliation, trying to bring the sides together. And yet we know that the end of this story involves Chuck Heston getting chased through a cornfield. So we know that whatever Caesar is striving for, he won't achieve it or it won't last if he does achieve it. And there's something... The idea of Caesar as this tragic figure is so compelling to me. The idea that we're going to follow his arc over over however long you know this current series lasts and 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 i hope by the way they never i hope they're not like oh now we got to redo like our our version of the original i hope they never touch that and just leave it as the thing that's going to happen down the line and if you want to kind of get over there it is that's the 68 one but uh ultimately you know it's again this goes to what we were talking about earlier the movie was originally titled caesar but they changed it. They added Planet of the Apes to the title. Well, once you add Planet of the Apes into the title, there's certain expectations and iconography that we associate with that name. Mm-hmm. And and the, part of those expectations is the subjugation of, of humankind. And so when we start our journey towards that destination with an ape who is not just sympathetic, but I mean, we love him. We love him because we've seen him grow up. I mean, there. I, that's that's what I think. It's if you're if you're going to uh, find a new avenue into this series, that's the way you do it. And they they did it. Yeah, the, I think there's there's a lot of uh, meaningful relationship story in there as far as the father son dynamic, and we have it on both ends. John Lithgow to, to James Franco, and then James Franco to Caesar, and then you right. also have Caesar, who's you know. He's, in, in my opinion, presented as a wonderfully complex three-dimensional character because you see how he is part of that family and how there's that lo- family love there, but that he also has that sense that there's something wrong and he doesn't belong. Yeah. And that, that they're trying to hide him and that, you know, he, it's almost like he's willing to put up with it. Yeah, because he does love the family. He does love his father and his grandfather, and his surrogate mother. Uh, but then eventually he's ripped from that family and put in with the with his own kind, where he doesn't fit. Yeah. So he's he's somebody who doesn't fit doesn't fit in either world really. Right. Yeah. And yet he ends up as the leader of that second world, which is just yeah. so well done. Uh, I mean, it's it's a science fiction version of of Call of the Wild. You know, it's kind of that that same. I mean, I think I think there's that terrific moment where uh, where Will goes to the, the the facility to get Caesar back, and Caesar just kind of shuts the door. Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's that 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 ship has sailed basically. Yeah, and and it's it's. I mean, I remember you know when he he's in his cell and he draws the the representation of that window. And I remember there's a moment when, when Will isn't able to get him, and he he like erases, out of frustration he he kind of erases it. And I remember just my heart breaking <clears throat> as I watched it because I was like, uh, you know, when you when you again when you connect the dots based on your foreknowledge, you're like, see, th- these are all these little steps along the road that are going to lead us to, you know, where we know things are going to have to go. Yeah, I I agree with that as well. Now, from the human character point of view, 
we have James Franco playing Will Rodman, uh, John Lithgow playing his father, whose name I'm uh, at a loss for right now. Excuse me. Uh, and I really kind of felt that they were the only three-dimensional human characters that we got in the movie. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, and that's not to say that the other characters aren't well represented or that they don't serve the story well. I do think the other characters serve the story well, but they're there for a purpose to move the narrative, to uh, let the story develop as it needs to, but we really don't ever need to know, for the most part, what's inside their heads. And I don't yeah. think we really get too much inside their heads. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the the primary, uh, I mean, or I should say the secondary characters are, I mean, there's Frida Pinto as as the girlfriend whose job is to be the girlfriend, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the neighbor who is just, I mean, this guy, its he's like a comic book villain. He's so unpleasant. Yeah, he's detestable. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost to the, like, you know, he, he, he's lived next door to these people for however long he's got to know that the dad has Alzheimer's. Like his, his reaction is so overblown. It's like, dude, (laughs) relax. Well, you you know, the one, the one part with him though, that I did, I think if they had gone a different way, you would have accepted is the scene when Caesar goes outside to try and play with the children. Yeah. And he's got the baseball bat and he's kind of, I guess he breaks Caesar's arm. Yes. the bat. Uh, that, to me, I, I could see that. You know, you're protecting your children, and they had kept Caesar hidden. So it's quite possible right. he had no idea that this chimpanzee was there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I could see being protective of your children all of a sudden you see this, you know, what's he got to be at that point? 200 pounds, probably? And he's yeah. over there with his children. Uh, you know, I, I could understand the protectiveness there. But then after that, you'd have to think that at some point they would speak to each other. There'd be something. Right. You wouldn't just continue to live next door to each other and, and, and not have anything ever come up again. Uh, right. So, and like you say, he, he should know that the dad has Alzheimer's. So when the dad goes in the car, you'd be a li- you know, not that you wouldn't be upset that your car's getting hit, but you'd, you'd at least understand the circumstance. And yeah. And I mean, you, you can see that, that Lithgow is, I mean, he's unkempt and I mean, it's, it's clearly, he's not well, right. It's, it's it's I mean it's one of those things where we we can buy a science fiction concept, but it's it's the it's the human concept where we're going to be the most like well wait that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're, we'll go along with oh here's uh, ALZ you know uh, one thirteen and it it gives apes intelligence okay fair enough, but wait you're going to treat somebody who's clearly not well like this like that's that's the part where it gets tripped up. And, and actually I would, I would also add uh, David Oyello as the, as the corporate guy. Oh, is that a uh, Jacobs? Uh, right. Mr. Jacobs is named of course, in honor of Arthur Jacobs, trying to produce the original movies. Uh, it's just, he's again, he's, he, he's almost like they needed to give him a mustache to twirl, you know? And, and early on, I think they started slowly with that. You know, he, he twirls his mustache a little bit cause he, you know, quickly orders that all the apes be euthanized when he didn't necessarily have to go that route. Uh, so, so we have a little bit of a, a villainous moment there, but you can almost understand what he's thinking and what he's doing. But at the end, by the end, when he's in the helicopter directing the people to shoot down the apes, you know, yeah. he, he's he's in a total. You know, not only does he need the mustache to twirl, he needs the stovepipe hat 
you know, to, to really right. be, uh, you know, <laughs> and tie somebody on the train tracks kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's his, his, his arc is unclear enough where it's, it's, he, it's, it's so abrupt. His, his sort of turn into abject villainy is, is so abrupt that the moment, you know, near the end where, where Koba, the, the other, you know, the chimpanzee, you know, kills him and it's meant to be kind of a, a cathartic moment of a sort. I, I don't know that it necessarily lands the way it, the way it should have. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think he needed to be, I, 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 I needed some more complexity in, in his, in his sort of, in his characterization. Well, especially, and some of this comes from knowing where the movie is going to go in the next, in the next movie. Yeah. Knowing what Koba's personality is, and That's we do true. see a lot more of it in the next movie. You would like for that scene to have a little bit more of a, a little bit more gray area. You know, but yeah. by the time that scene happens in this movie, again, he Jacobs is in full mustache twirling mode to the point where you're rooting for Koba to do what happens. Right. And again, knowing Koba's villainous turn in the next movie, and I don't want to go too much into that because we probably get to that at some point on the show. Uh, it would have been nicer to see, you know, where, where you don't know that it's the right thing to take him down. Right. Yeah, that's true. Very true. But that's... You know, eventually the movie does lead us to the all-out action that I think they had to do. I think if this had just remained a, a small story throughout, I don't think it would have been the hit that it was, especially, as, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that they tagged the Planet of the Apes name onto it. Right. I think once you do that, I think, you know, you, you at least need some sort of action sequence in there. And, you need and th- some hot human-on-ape action. Exactly, and they really did go for it well on the on the Golden Gate Bridge of all places. Now, that probably hits hits home a lot closer for you than for me. Yeah, really. It's I mean, it's, it was it's, it's extraordinary watching a Planet of the Apes movie set in my hometown. You know, like uh, Muir Woods, which is which is where the the climax of the movie is, and of course, uh, in in the city, it's it's uh, uh, the the there's there's a certain special kind of iconography of having these apes sort of crawling all across the Golden Gate Bridge, which I think that, you know, when we talk about iconic images, I mean, the Ape series has set a high bar because we've got Charlton Heston crumpled in front of the Statue of Liberty. And so you you have to imagine the filmmakers are kind of like, what other American landmark can we incorporate into the film that would have, you know, just as much resonance? And I don't know if it has the same amount of resonance, but it's certainly a striking uh, image. Absolutely. I think if you're going to go, you know, if you're going to say we don't want to go for another New York image, obviously you don't want to go Statue of Liberty again. You don't want to go Empire State Building. Uh, so now I think I think the natural incli- inclination is to say let's go West Coast. And I'm not sure off the top of my head that anything else would be better suited for that than the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. So now I'm I'm an East Coast person. I'm a New York person. You're out there. How realistically is that presented? I mean, and obviously, uh, giving giving uh, some uh, leeway for the fact that they have intelligent apes in it. Other than <laughs> that, how realistically is it presented? I would say it's pretty good. You know, I mean, it, it's it's recognizably the Bay Area and and uh, uh, you know the what what they show of the Golden Gate Bridge certainly is is evocative of of my own experiences with it. Again, minus the apes traversing it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, it's a sad, that sad thing you haven't ever gotten to experience that aspect of it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I, I would think it's probably a good thing I haven't experienced uh, that. Actually, yeah, that's, that's another way to put it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to back us up a little bit because I did jump past some, some real significant stuff here. Uh, when Caesar gets eventually uh, the court order, court order present, puts him into the, uh, I guess, the habitat for... Uh, apes yeah and i've never again i've never experienced anything like that i've never been to any place like that i wasn't except for a zoo i wasn't aware that places like that might even exist and for all i know they don't i don't really know Uh, me either but that seems to be fairly realistic as far as the feel not necessarily the characters the characters again they get a little bit mustache twirling in in both Brian Cox and uh, what's his name, Tom Felton. Tom Felton, and and that's I mean to to me that's actually I'm like how how are you going to have Brian Cox in this movie and not have him be the guy who's taunting Caesar like that that to me is is a major lapse that I mean Tom Felton who's who's a fine actor but it's he he comes off like a like a like a wiener kid. Whereas I think I think that 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 moment where Caesar finally breaks and he speaks his defiance, you want that to be against Brian Cox, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it would have been better. I I, I, I guess the the thought process was Tom Felton was just coming off uh, his role as Draco Malfoy yeah. and was far better known to audiences than Brian Cox at this point. Sure. And that having him be the prime antagonist that finally, like you said, gets Caesar to break. Uh, I, I think just, you know, it was probably more of a business decision than a creative decision. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's just, it's to me, Brian Cox is so completely wasted in this movie. He basically sits at a desk. That's his job in this movie. Well, he, d- he does have his moments, though, where he just shows himself just to be slimy. Yeah, but I, I think I think we needed we needed, I mean I guess it's just because it's Brian Cox, you know. I mean we, we his his persona is so known to us when he's able, you know, like when he was Striker in, in mm-hmm. X Men and and uh, you know Hannibal Lecter and whatnot. I mean we know we know what Brian Cox is capable of, right? So I feel like that's like this missed opportunity where we didn't get Brian Cox as the villain in the movie he was in anyway, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, that's that's. That's a very good point, and honestly, it's one I hadn't really thought about. Uh, what I did think was Tom Felton was very... It, it, we really didn't get his motivation in this, other than, you know, ooh, look, there's apes, and I'm superior to them, so I can be mean to them. Yeah, he's just he's he's that kid who used to pick on, you know, puppies when he was a kid. and yeah, Tear the wings yeah, off butterflies. And... Yeah, well, <laughs> your friendly neighborhood sociopath. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the one scene where, you know, or towards the end of his uh, arc, uh, that does make sense is that, you know, he shows up there and he's trying to show off with the girls and stuff. That that almost kind of seemed more realistic than some of the other things with him. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. And then there was the guy who we saw precious little of. I don't know what actor it is or what his character's name was either. The, the worker there who was clearly a simple person. Right. And, you know, he... he clearly had no malice towards the apes and i think we have a nice moment there when the apes finally do uprise and they start to attack him and caesar stops them right and takes him and puts him in a safe place and then they that's move a great on. moment 
It's a great moment for his character. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we really get, and I guess it's time to focus a little bit on uh, Andy Serkis and how he acted in this movie. And I think he gets his due. I, I'd like to say he's an underappreciated actor, but I think, I think, you know, I'm not the only person who's seen his work and said, wow, he does a great job of, you know, yeah. of, of letting us see emotion without actually speaking. Yeah. Which and is it's funny. I, I remember back when, uh, when they were first in, you know, when development had begun on this and, and there was, I think it was on ain't it cool news. It was like, uh, see who's going to play Caesar in, uh, you know, the rise of the apes. And before I even click the link, I'm like, watch it be Andy circus. Click the link. It's Andy circus. I was like, all right, well, it's <laughs> a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he is the, the number one CGI motion capture actor in the world right now. There's no question yeah. about it. He, he, I actually uh, got to meet him a few years ago. They, they had the world premiere of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes here in San Francisco. And uh, I got to attend the after party of that. And uh, he is just so nice. And he's so gregarious in talking about how he, you know, created the, the role and, and uh, everything he puts into it. I mean, I, 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 he's certainly not underrated, but I think it's under, uh, known just just how much work actually does go into even a motion capture performance you know i mean i think i think there is a perception among money that oh it's just a bunch of special effects but i mean the truth is it really it's like it's just it's digital makeup but i mean there's an actor under there who's who's given a lot to make that character real yeah i i think so and i i think you know sometimes i probably read into it too much but the fact that he seemed like such a down-to-earth regular guy kind of thing uh i wonder if that's not a byproduct of the fact i'm just looking up his wikipedia page now he's 52 years old he probably has only started to get he probably really only got his due even though he got famous for lord of the rings and king kong he's probably only started to really get his due as an actor where people have started to appreciate the quality of his acting with this series I would I would agree with that. Yeah. So that puts him at, you know, only whatever five six years, which puts him in his mid to late forties before he's really getting that recognition, and probably yeah. at that age before he's starting to get any sort of serious financial payoff for his efforts. So he may have gone through the years of struggling, which have kept him kind of humble because he knows what it's like to struggle. I think sometimes yeah. when you get these people who start off too young, whether they be you know, actors, singers, athletes. I think sometimes when the fame and the fortune come too early, they don't appreciate the people who don't have it. I think you're absolutely right, yeah. So I wonder if that, you know, that's an element in, in his, you know, his personality at this point. And it's it's great when you hear about people having success that you can root for, you know, that they are good people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess just the final seen in this and that's yeah. the the apes going into the forest and just kind of taking over that now i walked away from it saying okay they have a pretty small portion of the world right there yeah i mean they could easily you know the government you know i, I you could go to the dramatic okay nuke san francisco but the more realistic you could probably just guess that forest with something to you know, basically some sort of some form of sleeping gas or something. Yeah. And and then just capture them all and, and take over. But then the element that kills that effectively, no pun intended, 
is that we have our, t- our stinger at the end with the disease or the, with the drug that's making the apes intelligent also yeah. starting to kill off the population of humans. Th- thanks to the worst neighbor ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, uh, in the early part of our conversation, I was saying how I had stayed away from, from spoilers and whatnot. And here's, here's one exception that I made. Somebody had actually sent me, uh, the script and it was an earlier draft of the script. And they were like, Hey, if you, if you want to read it, here it is. And I was like, I'm not going to read it. But there was one thing that I wanted to know, and that was whether it would have a traditional dark apes ending or not. So I was like, you know, the only thing I'm going to do is I want to read the last page, just the last page of the script. So this is weird, me saying I don't want any spoilers, but I was just like, I want to see the last page complete without any context of the rest of the film. But is it a dark ending or a or a or a hopeful ending? And I will say that the the ending of the the earlier drafts were much darker than the the film as it ended up being made. And <clears throat> for one thing, we um, we essentially see as as the apes are ascending, uh, uh, you know, to, to the top of the trees. We're, we're cross cutting with news footage and and audio of sort of civilization collapsing. And so there's you're you're seeing those two things happen much more closely together but the other thing is that will rodman dies in the script as originally written oh he did the, on screen he dies yeah so the, the the way it was written originally is that uh will tracks uh, caesar into the woods but he, the police are far, right behind him and just as caesar comes out uh essentially will is in the way and he gets shot by the police and so he dies in caesar's arms and so that's essentially the last connection to humanity being cut for mm-hmm. Caesar. And it was actually very interesting because I had a chance to talk to Rick Joff and Amanda Silver, who who wrote the, the script for, for the first one. And I actually asked them about that. I said the earlier drafts were much darker. And, you know, the, the film as it ends, I mean, it the, the darkness is implicit rather than than shown on screen and and i asked what the rationale behind that was and they said something really interesting they said they said that the as originally conceived caesar had much more of a michael corleone arc oh that that he didn't want to be part of it and kind of got pulled in he he gets pulled in and essentially he by the end of the film he is a dark character he has he is lost in essence and what they realized as they were writing the film and as they were working through the different drafts is they didn't want that because they they loved Caesar and they didn't want to see his character go that dark. Mm-hmm. I think and that's a wise decision that they didn't. I agree, and 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 I think I think the the you know the the wisdom of it is to a certain extent is in foresight now because I I don't think that they had any specific designs on turning this into a, a franchise, uh, but. But knowing now that we do have, you know, X number of films, it allows for a much richer arc for Caesar. And and the fact that even now, two and presumably three movies in, Caesar is still a compelling protagonist for us. And he's not somebody who, he's not a Michael Corleone figure. He's he's somebody who we're trying to, we want to see him succeed. Uh, right. Because, you know, and, and I think um, I think their instincts were, were very spot on there. And so... I think the decision in in constructing the climax of the film, where where it ends with Caesar being triumphant, 
in in and and we see that you know Patrick Doyle's music really swells and it's a terrific uh, piece of music there. Uh, it's 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 success that is separate from the fall of humanity, which we then are able to play off. You know the the, the stinger scene with with the the plague spreading is that's not really connected to Caesar. It's not Caesar's fault that that's happened, and I think that's right. important. Yeah, that's that's a good point as well. That, yeah, the fall of humanity is not Caesar's fault. And Caesar, as we see in the next movie, and again, I don't want to go too far into that, is desperately trying to maintain peace. Yeah. He's he's not looking to overcome the humans on the world. He's trying to find a way to coexist. Yeah. So, and that, that goes to what you said earlier about that he's ultimately doomed to failure because we know, assuming we take the 1968 movie as, as canon which I think would be a sin if we can't, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> then, then, you know, humanity has to fall. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, he's, I mean, he's obviously, he shares the name, but he's also very, very similar in characterization with the Roddy McDowell Caesar. And, you know, the, the end of battle for the planet of the apes, you know, you have these, these, you know, it's, it's several hundred years after Caesar has died and you have humans and apes playing together. And, you know, the, we, 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 zoom in on on the the statue of caesar with with tears right going down his face and people uh, you know there's that question of like well it what is what, why is he crying you know and you can read it as tears of happiness that his dream has come true or tears of sadness that well you know he, he knows that it's not going to last and you know i'm i'm certainly as it pertains to this series i tend to always come down on the, on the the more cynical side and I think even that Caesar was doomed to fail, and he was crying because he knew that the future of man and apes was conflict. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's the same case here. I mean, I think um, Caesar, I mean, I have no idea what's in store for the next film or, or if they keep going after that. But I mean, I think him being a doomed character is, to me, what makes him an interesting character. Yeah, you know, I, because because you know we we don't always get to succeed, but it's the striving that that makes our our efforts uh, worthwhile. We hope. I again, I you know, I, I'd like to disagree with you about something. We can get into a debate, but I haven't gotten anything yet. Uh, <laughs> well, I, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned the the music in in the movie, and I'm curious overall, what did you think of the score? You know, I think. I think there are moments it, it has it has some memorable tracks, but I think that this is this is the kind of it's actually more more uh, harmonious than I would like from an ape score. I think there's I think ape scores benefit from kind of a, a studied atonality. Uh, you know, if you, if you listen to to the Goldsmith music in, in the original, I mean, it's it's uh, there it's 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 a good listen, but it's not a pleasant listen. If that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Well, it's it's very and, different. The Goldsmith original score, you know, yeah, not, you know, a lot a lot of strange sounds and things that you wouldn't normally hear in music. Yeah, and and strange instrumentation that he brought. He brought in all kinds of exotic uh, instruments to really, you know, the, the hunt sequence has. There's like a ram's horn, I think, in there. Uh, so so it, it so Patrick Doyle's score is very different. But I, I remember this was the summer of 2011. And this was, uh, it came out a few months after Thor, which he also did the score for. So uh, I would say I liked the score for Thor better, but they're, they're, they're very similar. I mean, he, I, he's, he's a very talented musician. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think for the most part, uh, this is a pretty low-key score is the way I kind of saw it. It's, yeah. it's one of those ones where 
you have the, your occasional uh, John Williams score where you walk out and you're humming the tune as you leave the movie. Yeah. But more often than not, you want the music to just kind of be complementary to what's going on the screen and not necessarily stand out on its own. Right. And I think that's what we get here pretty much. I think yeah, it, it, I mean, it complements the, the actions on the screen very exactly. well. It's but entirely I, functional. Yeah, but I don't think it ever, you know, we don't really have a recognizable Caesars theme or something like that. Right. I think I think that uh, Michael Giacchino uh, was able to do some some more interesting stuff in the in the next one, which I, we won't talk about that here. But uh, I think in in terms of giving giving more thematic material that's also beholden to the the musical legacy of, of this franchise, I think Giacchino uh, arguably did a, did a better job of that. Which is not in any way to diminish what Patrick Doyle did, because I do think that the, the score is it, it is a good score. Yeah, I would I agree. It's it's. It's good. It's a good. I hate to. It almost sounds like I'm insulting it, and I don't mean to. But it's almost workman. It it, it fits the what's going on. Everything flows nice and smooth. And again, but there's nothing like I, I don't see myself getting a copy of the score and just listening to it on its own. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think other than the the final bit of music where where Caesar ascends the the tree and and the music swells, uh, there's there's nothing that I can really think of off the top of my head that that has has a real identity but i i think i think that also goes to what we were talking about earlier is that i mean the movie itself is relatively low key so there there aren't a lot of moments that you're going to be able to put a, a memorable thematic motif under that that'll stay with people i mean it's it's just for, for about two-thirds of the movie it's just it's a smaller scale film yeah and and i think it what we're saying here almost sounds like we're insulting it, and I don't mean it that way. Right. Uh, <laughs> because I think if, if we walked out of this with a score that was particularly memorable, I think that may have in, in its own way been a failure because that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, we're not supposed yeah, to be coming absolutely. out of this thinking about the music. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly not meant to diminish the score. It's just meant, you know, it serves its purpose very well. And that's, you know, it does what it's supposed to. Exactly. Uh, so th- I guess the last topic, well, two t- I have two topics. One I'll, I'll do really quick is just, uh, do you know any, do you have any foreknowledge about the budget or box office on this? Uh, for, for Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was, it was relatively inexpensive, which you want it to be, right? If, if you're trying to start a, the franchise and, and. I mean that that was something that I was watching very closely was was how much is this going to do, and I think I think it played uh, box office wise very similarly to to uh, Batman Begins, where it it did okay relative to its budget, but it wasn't a mega blockbuster. But it, the word of mouth was very good. I mean, it, it cost under hundred million dollars, which you want right. it to be. It was according domestic, to Wikipedia, it was ninety three million. There you go, and and I, I think domestically it made like 150, which is again, that's that's what you want it to be. I, I think I, internationally, I don't think it made more than 500 million. I think it was right around 400, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you're you're pretty much on the money with it. And again, I'm working with Wikipedia, so I don't always trust those numbers. Uh, but they're usually they usually culled from I think uh, Box Office Mojo, which is usually fairly accurate to my experience. And they list. They just give the box office. They don't break it down domestic and worldwide, and they have it at four hundred eighty-one million. Now, if it made one hundred and fifty domestically, 
Oh, actually, I, I'm wrong. It made 176 domestic, so it actually made more than I thought. Okay, so that's it made almost double its budget. Which yeah, that's a rousing. I think success. I think five years ago was was the definition of success. Uh, in the last few years, it seems that because the uh, promotional budgets have increased so much that they look to do two and a half times the budget to consider it a success. Yeah, I mean, well, and it varies. I mean, I think I think that any any movie that costs less than a hundred and it makes 175 i mean you that's that's a success there's you know that that's exactly what you want to be doing is is for for a big, big blockbuster type movie that's been the biggest problem this past year i mean my gosh they're they're spending just obscene amounts of money on on stuff that should not be costing that much teenage mutant ninja turtles the the second one that just came out cost uh 120 140 million that's that's like a that's like a eighty million dollar movie, you know. <laughs> I was going to say you 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 really want to make a success. See if you can keep that budget under fifty million. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because your core audience is not as big as they think it is on that. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's that's the thing, and I, and I think these apes films they're smart about that because even the, for the second one, it, relatively speaking, they kept the budget tight, you know. And I think I think, I mean, that's the lesson from from the the original apes series is is that, you know, they, they kept those budgets low, and that's how they were able to keep making them. Yeah, well, the original the original movies, they, they cut the budget every time. In, in half. I think by the end, they had $1.50, and everybody <laughs> had to bring their own lunch from home, I think. <laughs> Although that's still one of my favorite quotes. Uh, in John Landis had a small part in that movie. and uh, That's right. And he was speaking to uh, John Huston, who played the lawgiver. Yeah. And... I think they were sitting down having lunch or something, which I guess they brought their own. And, and he, <laughs> these he, little brown bags. His his quote, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't really remember exactly what he said, but he said something to the effect of, "You know, somebody who's as well known and respected as you, why would you take this part?" And that John Huston said something to the effect of, "You know, my boy, you just don't turn down the paycheck." Yeah. Well, as long as the check clears, right? Yeah. But uh, the last point that I just wanted to discuss before we start wrapping it up a little bit is uh, a lot of Easter eggs in this movie. Yeah. And I enjoy that. I enjoy it when they do them in a way where if you don't get, get the Easter egg, you don't feel like it inhibited your ability to enjoy it. Yes. You know, I, I've been watching these movies for 40 something years now, uh, and I'm going to catch the Easter eggs for the most part, and I'm going to smile at them. But I went to see it with my son, who is 19 now, so he was 14 at the time. He had seen the first Planet of the Apes movie, and that was it. He had never seen anything else. Uh, and he, he saw the first Planet of the Apes movie once. You know, he was not a huge fan. You know, he, he enjoyed it, and he moved on. Right. Uh, so he wasn't going to get all the Easter eggs in there. The Easter eggs that were in there had no, no effect of killing his ability to enjoy this movie and to me that's the perfect way to do it right uh did you have any in particular that you found to be your favorites um i think uh i i liked the little stuff i liked you know the the female ape's name is cornelia and uh the the tom felton's character is dodge landon i thought that was cute yeah that was that was actually my personal favorite that Naming. Yeah. The, what what I didn't like, I'll tell you, it was giving uh, Tom Felton the the get your stinking paws off me line. I didn't like that. Yeah, um, that that seemed a little forced. It, it was forced to me, and I and I think that it 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 was almost it it almost 
it, it almost it doesn't but it almost undercuts caesar's saying no like a few seconds after because it's just it's it's like we just know that line too well so it's the, the movie pay, sort of doing a winky winky thing at, right at the moment when we should be the most like that's like the most dramatic moment of the entire film mm-hmm well, I'm thinking about it. it. It's almost, and God, I, I'm, I'm going to regret making this comparison, but uh, <laughs> it, it's almost, in some way, when you think about it, it's almost their Star Trek Into Darkness moments. Yeah, no. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the fact that they had to redo the scene and then twist it. So now yep. you have, you know, in That's the original exactly. movie, the, you know, Charlton Heston saying, take your stinking paws off me, was the key moment, you know, the the, the shocker. Uh and and so dramatic, and I just remember Jerry Goldsmith's score, you know, really playing that up at that moment, yep. and, and you know, all the action just stops and it just holds on it. So to have that reversed and then have Tom Felton say it really is a little, you know, it's out of place. It's not. It it doesn't leave the same stink in your mouth that Into Darkness did as right. you know <laughs> with what they did because it's a it's a you know literally two seconds as opposed yep. to you know the entire third act. Um, but it, yeah, it that that did fall flat. But yeah. then, and the fact that, as you said, the fact that it's followed up with immediately with Caesar saying no, uh, yeah, it kind of blurs that and and puts that in your rearview mirror so fast that it's okay. Exactly, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, uh, as far as other little Easter eggs, I think I think um, the ALZ one twelve they they call it that because that's the runtime of the original Apes movies on in twelve minutes. Oh, you know what? I didn't even realize that was a any strike. I mean, I love stuff like that. It's that's so inside baseball that you know that I prefer stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I think I think there's an oblique reference to what we're meant to assume is the Charlton Heston uh, uh, spaceship. Yes, that's been and lost I, in space. And I like that because I, I don't even think it's oblique. I think they come right out and say Colonel Taylor in the news report. Do they? I, I don't. I, I don't thought they. That. I thought they did. I you know, I, if I'm wrong. I'm sorry, uh, but I could have sworn that in the news report, and it's in the background, and it's not they're definitely not focusing on it, which is, yeah. to me, one of the things that makes it a good Easter egg. Uh, right. But I'm pretty sure they say Colonel Taylor at some point. Oh, I, if they did, I missed that. And then we also have uh, Charlton Heston appearing uh, on a right, TV, right. TV screen in that facility, I think, uh, was it the Agony and the Ecstasy? The, yes, that's what it's from. It's playing in the background. Uh, so, you know, a lot of nice little moments like that. Uh I don't know why, but I, I when when actors are no longer with us and they do it that way with sticking a little scene on a TV or whatever, for some reason I particularly enjoy that, and that makes I'm just thinking of uh, in the Incredible Hulk when they had uh, yeah, that's Bill, exactly Bill what Bixby I was thinking on TV. Right, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. So now I don't know if you listen to me enough to know the Jaws scale, but I'll break it down anyway because I break it down for anybody who listens to the show every time anyway. Okay. 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 I, I we rank the movies on the Jaws scale, which is Jaws, Jaws two, Jaws three, Jaws four. I don't necessarily my scale doesn't necessarily correlate to the reviews of those particular films. Okay. Uh, for the purposes of this show, if you rank it Jaws, you're saying it's an all time classic, a nearly perfect movie, you know, just a, basically a classic. Uh, Jaws two, really solid, holds up to repeated viewing, an enjoyable experience, good movie. Jaws three. You can watch it, you can get some enjoyment out of it, but it's really nothing special. Jaws 4 is a bomb. Okay. Now, since this show started, 
we have yet to get a Jaws 4, including the Tim Burton one, which was ranked as Jaws 3. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Because upon repeated viewing, it did have some, some merit that we found in it. But anyway, the question I have for you, Zaki, is Rise of the Planet of the Apes, is it Jaws? Where does it fall on the scale in your review? It, well, it is not Jaws because uh, the, the very few movies are Jaws. Um, I, I would say it is not Jaws, but it's better than Jaws 2. So somewhere in the middle there. So, so Jaws 2 plus. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to rank it as a Jaws 2, but I definitely, from a personal point of view, probably lean more towards where you are. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say, but if the average person is sitting down watching it, I think it's going to be Jaws 2. It's a solid movie. It's very enjoyable. There's really very little to complain about with it, uh, but I just can't rank it at the level of all-time classic. Yeah. Uh, for, for better or for worse, there's been some movies on the show lately that uh, you know we've just done some all-time classics, and I, I feel like I've, I, I almost feel like I'm too quick to give the Jaws ranking on certain movies, and I have to be more critical. Uh, but in in this case. I really, really enjoy this movie, but it's Jaws 2. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. Now, I have to thank you very, very much for coming on with me and taking time to uh, to, to do this from what I know is a very busy life that you have. I'm, I'm sitting in my closet with the lights out so that nobody knows where I'm that's, uh, I'm not making that up. <laughs> but knowing your, your personal situation, your work situation, and your podcasting situation, you are obviously a very busy man. So making the time for me, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, why don't we just take a minute, though, for you to tell everybody who listens to this who may not know your shows otherwise, what other shows you do. Oh, okay. Well, and first of all, Paul, thanks so much for having me on. I, any chance I have to talk about the Apes films, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So so I will gladly sit in the closet to talk about it. <laughs> it just sounds so euphemistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, as far as where you can find me, well, you can read my movie reviews uh, at my website, zakiscorner.com. That's Z-A-K-I-S corner. Uh, dot com. That's also my Twitter handle, minus the dot com. And uh, my podcasts, I have uh, two uh, uh, movie-related shows. I have the Movie Film Podcast, which uh, comes out every two weeks, uh, which I co-host with my friend Brian Hall, who uh, is a comic book writer, and uh, he uh, works on the Bob's Burgers TV show. We talk about new releases and also features interviews with filmmakers of uh, projects that are coming up. And uh, next episode, which will be coming uh, uh in a couple days uh, features my interview with Bill Nagy about his new movie Their Finest so I think people will enjoy that Uh, my other show is Nostalgia Theater and that is a monthly show where I interview people who are connected to some of the pop culture artifacts uh, that I have loved from days gone by and uh, had a chance to talk to a lot of really interesting uh, writers, directors, actors who have made the things that I love and uh, that's more of a showcase for long form uh, in-depth interviews that i hope people will check out so both of those if you if you go to itunes and just type in movie film podcast uh you will see both both of those shows and i have to tell you i subscribe to both of them i enjoy them both very much i recommend them both very highly well thank you so much for saying that i really appreciate it. now i record a little bit in advance so by the time this posts that show you said you're going to have on in a few days is going to be in the rearview mirror and people are going to have to go back and look for it but there you go just seek the same out. i'm telling you seek it out and uh you know zaki and i were talking before we went on and i've i've kind of only discovered nostalgia theater recently and i've been listening to some episodes and zaki did a run on star trek which was excellent and i'm just gonna 
strongly recommend that not only do you subscribe to the show, but that you go to the back episodes and you find those and you listen to them. Because if you're a Star Trek fan, it, it really is must-listening. Yeah, and I mean, uh, while, while you're talking Star Trek, I, I have a, a run of episodes coming uh, throughout the course of this year where me and my friend Glenn Greenberg, who is a former comic book writer with Marvel and he used to write Star Trek comics, we're going to be watching all six of the original cast movies and doing commentary track uh, for all of those. So I think uh, th- that'll be a lot of fun. Oh, terrific. I'll definitely be looking for those. Anyway, thanks again. Uh, anybody who has any comments on this movie, any movie you'd like us to cover, any movie that we've covered in the past, any comments on the show. Uh, the email address is jawspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I have gotten precious little email since the show started, so I'd be interested in, in some feedback from anybody. I also uh, love to get iTunes reviews when I can get them. Uh, but thanks again for, for coming on, Zachy, and good night, everybody. Take care. Take your stinking bar off me, you damn 38! No!